Welcome to Risk Sleep Repeat, a podcast that features influential guest speakers from the world of fire, health and safety. We're going to focus on trust-based safety, owning and embracing risk and the importance of people over paperwork. Hosted by me, Adam Clark, Managing Director and Mike Stevens, CEO of Praxis 42. If you're a fire, health and safety professional, join us for inspirational conversations about the future of our industry. In this episode, I spoke to Heather Beach, who's the founder of the Healthy Work Company and works to improve the mental health and well-being programs for organizations on a global scale. She's implemented innovative strategies and training programs with ITV, MACE, Eurostar and Battersea Power Station. Heather was voted in the top 10 most influential people in health and safety in the UK for the third year running in 2020. It was great to sit down with Heather and get a deeper insight into mental health and well-being in the workplace. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello Heather, how great to see you again. Lovely to see you too, Mike. So well-being, it's something which has been very topical over, over time. And I know when you set up the, your business, the, the Healthy Work Company, it was something that was quite quite new maybe or it wasn't something that um, somebody was specialising in. What, what what made you come to that decision? Because it was a bit of a, a bit of a risk that you took, I think. Oh, Mike, it was a risk. I was in a, quite a good job, as you know. I really enjoyed my work as well. I was managing um, Safety and Health Expo, and I was managing IOSH Conference, SHP Magazine, Barber. But I was approaching a big birthday, one that you won't be anywhere near at the moment. It wasn't 40, <laughs> by the way. I thought to myself, do I want to be part of a big bureaucratic business for the rest of my career or do I want to do something that I'm really, really passionate about and interested in? And at the time, I could see that there was an increased interest in the health aspects of health and safety. A lot of that has been looking more at the occupational, shall I say occupational hygiene aspects, shall we say, but There was a real sort of lost opportunity there that I could see in terms of health and safety getting more involved in the health aspects. And by definition, you know, well-being is part of health. Now, when we look at well-being, you could say, oh, it had been ignored up till then. But that's not probably true. It was probably something that fitted into HR and more specifically into benefits So it would have been things like, you know, cycle to work schemes. It would have been perhaps an employee assistance program, perhaps private medical insurance. It might have been, you know, a yoga class and the famous sort of apples in the office approach, which was well-being was regarded at really until, you know, until I, I guess fairly recently. Yeah. So, so, so I kind of got in at the point where it was starting to be considered by health and safety professionals. And I would say that health and safety started to then take a slightly different, more proactive approach, which is now being built on much more by creating those partnerships with HR. So now the two have come back together and they are doing a much more holistic approach. So there's been a great deal of movement on how it's managed in organisations over the last five years since I've been involved in it. Yeah, because I was going to ask uh, the the question around uh, where does, uh, in in your experience, where does uh, wellbeing sit within organisations? Is it goes to either health and safety or it goes to HR? Is that typically that's that those two areas, or and one owns it and one doesn't own it, so to speak? It's a massive mix, and it tends to get passed around. So I think initially it was probably the person that wanted it took it. Mm-hmm. So it might right. have been somebody in health and safety, it might have been somebody in HR, it might have been somebody from a different function altogether, but probably one of those two. Um, Mm -hmm. Or in some cases, people have said to me, nobody wanted it, so I took it. Um, Now, having said that, what's also interesting is where it's owned in terms of seniority. So some organisations have said, well-being is important. I need to get someone in to look after it. But they've made, in my opinion, the mistake of employing somebody at a fairly junior level to do a more of a coordination role. And I think where it needs to be held is, yes, the more junior levels absolutely need to have lots of input into the strategy. 
but it also absolutely has to be owned at the most senior level. If your MD hasn't bought into the idea that well-being is important, then all your well-being strategy, in quotes, is going to do is scratch the surface. It's not going to get under the skin of how your business actually operates. And that is a big shift that's been occurring over the last year or so, is people are starting to understand that that it isn't an extraneous thing that you bolt on the side. It needs to become part and parcel just of the way your business works and of the way you do things. So yes, there are reactive interventions that we can put in place, such as an employee assistance programme, such as mental health first aiders, which was something that health and safety professionals were very keen on in the early days. But unless we look with our senior management team at how work is allocated, how what the culture is like in the organisation, whether people have the right resources to do their jobs, are people fairly treated, is there inclusion in the organisation, then, then you're not creating a culture of well-being unless you really do those things. So I observed early doors that the mental health first aiders was uh, everybody sort of went for it and said well this is what we're going to do now as part of our mental health piece within well-being. I, I thought there's some dangers in doing that because it's that top-down thing which you just explained it's okay having somebody that's going to act in that way but how does that fit into line managing, uh, the line managers responsibilities, how does it fit into um, how do you get things done? Because if you're at a junior level, it could be you're raising expectations and not able to deliver on them. I've had a very ambivalent relationship with the whole mental health first aid course, the, the, the mental health first aid England one. It's done a lot of good things. So it's raised the profile of mental health in organisations in an easily digestible way, in a way which has helped to destigmatize mental illness and to educate people on what mental health is and what mental ill health is. So it's done a lot of very good things. It was also very promoted at very senior levels within the health and safety profession. And therefore, people in effect all did it because it felt like the right thing to do. Um, however, exactly as you highlighted, Mike, there are some real inherent dangers in, in that approach. The first thing is that you should train your managers first and foremost, and that the course that is appropriate for, me, for your managers is not mental health first aid. Yes, your okay. managers are going to learn something by doing mental health first aid, but they're not going to touch on their manager duties. And in fact, some of the advice that's given in the mental health first aid course, I would suggest, was possibly conflicting with a manager's responsibilities. So just as an example, confidentiality. So, you know, am I, if I'm your mental health first aider, I should keep that information entirely confidential, not talk to anyone unless there's a risk to life. But if I'm your manager, I can't promise confidentiality. I need to go talk to HR. I need to go talk to occupational health. I might want to talk to my manager about it. I certainly want to write a note yeah. that I had that conversation with you on that day. So I think it's a bit of a danger. And some organisations said, oh, a whole of our senior management team has been trained in, as a mental health first aid. And I was just kind of horrified by that, to be yeah. honest. Because to be honest, it, you know, what senior management teams need to understand is very different to what somebody on the on the shop floor needs to understand. That distinction, that training needs analysis on the first instance, which is done with everything else. You know, if you were looking at asbestos, you wouldn't train the managing director in asbestos removal, and or, or you would train them in what they needed yeah. to know in terms of their legal duties. Yeah. And what we've done here is we've thrown we've thrown mental health first aid at everyone. Now, no, as I said, mm. nothing in there is inherently bad it's a good course and there's lots of benefits to it and we wouldn't have got any business for the first two years of our life if we hadn't offered it but there are some real kind of health warnings in there in terms of who you get to be a mental health first aider and also it certainly shouldn't be the only piece of training you provide you should look at your stakeholders and look at what's most appropriate to that stakeholder yeah so hopefully for the listener of uh, of our podcast here is that there's a takeaway there um, and one thing I just wanted to ask you is that when you've identified that when you are invited in by an organisation and you've got some really large organisations done work for, um, I guess you have to sort of tread carefully, but also have to be true to your feelings about what's the right thing to do. 
in terms of their approach. And, and I'm guessing that the training then isn't just like, here's, here's some training, do this for as a senior manager. Sometimes you might have to orientate it based on the culture or where they are on their, on their plan. Absolutely. And even down to the person that we send in for the training. So, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily, as a middle class white woman, I wouldn't necessarily go in to a construction site. I might, I might be all right at it, but I've got trainers who will be more, you know, who would be, I'd be able to identify with that audience and they would identify with them much easier. And it just, it gets rid of that barrier, that first barrier to, to going in. I would go in and do a senior management team because I've been a director in a, in a large organisation. I understand the pressures they're under and I wouldn't send someone who hadn't been in that position to go and train the board. So, yeah, I think that's really important. And also the one thing that uh, we do is that we are we always tailor and bespoke everything, which is another reason why for us mental health first aid wasn't comfortable because you have to deliver the course exactly as it's written. So we we went away and we worked with Highfield to create a qualification, which was more workplace specific, but also enabled us to be able to tailor the slides because uh, with Mental Health First Aid England, you get a PDF and that's it. You have to just deliver that. Whereas the one that we've created with Highfield, we can add things in. So yesterday I was training an organisation that weren't large enough to say we want a manager course and we want a first aider course. So they told me we're putting everybody in the same course. So I basically took some slides from my manager training and built them into my first aid training and made the distinction. So I said, anyone here who's a manager, this is what you need to know. If you're not a manager, this is what you need to know. So everything's tailored to that organisation. That's um, that's really good to hear because I think sometimes um, you find in organisations, we used to talk about it, um, where it's about uh, like in visualizing an escalator you'll come across some um, group businesses as as it was or organizations which are on an escalator of compliance or on an escalator of improvement and some are the right at the beginning and some are the right at the top and if you go in at the wrong level that must be really really difficult for those that are receiving that and it also undermines what you're trying to do because if you don't get the fact that they are pretty high up on that uh, escalator then you're not giving them the right thing because they might just want an an outside view or endorsement of what they're doing. And sometimes that's a bit like a benchmark or a reference point. Whereas at the other end of it, it's like, I'm not sure whether or not wellbeing is right for me or my organisation. So on that whole thing about, you know, the, you know, where, where they are and how, how you get somebody on site, how, how do you do that with a, with a senior management team? Presume you're being invited in, but not maybe everybody's on the same page. So how do you how do you deal with that? I like to do that face to face with a senior management team because it, I don't get that much time generally in front of them. So uh, you know, whereas with a with a, a lower down the organisation, I might get half a day or even a day with a senior management team. I've got versions of my course that are as short as half an hour and as long as four hours, depending on how much time they'll give me. Um, and then I really have a long conversation beforehand with the person who's asked me to come in to understand where they think the board are and what they're trying to achieve and what they've done so far. And then I build something which is entirely relevant to that board right now so I was recently in with an airport and they are trying to promote the value of better conversations just for safety so we built our approach with the board around the fact that better conversations work for everything not just for safety but also for well-being and what would be available to you as an organization from both the point of view of fulfilling your values and also from the point of view of achieving the goals that you have set if you could all have better conversations. So we set it very much from the point of view when we're talking to a board of what's good for your business and what's good for you personally. So where do you get a personal gain from doing this and where does your business get a gain as well? So I think there's a message there again for those that are listening in that using the right language and the language which is being used within an organisation really helps get the message across because you're communicating either in a pattern or in a way that reflects what's actually uh, the senior management approach to something. And that means that it gets uh, better adoption. So it's about doing that initial research. It's about understanding what, where they're at and then feeding that in 
to the topic which you're trying to put over. So um, is that something that you you knew before you started this or is this something that you've evolved into over time? No, I think I knew it. I, I And that, that was again why. And it's, it's terrible really, isn't it? Because there's a course that's been created which lots of people are using and I batted against it. And the reason I batted against it was because I wanted to do something much more personal to each organisation. And, you know, yes, there is some evidence base that people that go on that particular programme, they they are educated better in that topic. But I wanted to ensure that actually whatever we did with that organisation wasn't just about the individuals in the room, but was something that would impact the whole culture. And, and yes, you know, going in and doing a course, how much does that impact a culture? It's difficult to go back and, and, and see unless you get lots of people trained or you have a whole program in place where you're looking at each level and you're really building something but at least if we can go in and understand as you said Mike the language that works with that organization the goals for that organization the types of individuals in that team so when we train a pharmaceutical company and we've got lots of pharmaceutical companies as customers of ours we know that we have to put a lot of references to the science in there they want to know where does that reference come from? How do you know that? Which scientist said that? And then we go into another organisation where perhaps they're not lots of scientists and we don't put any of that in. We make it much more relatable perhaps to their life, but we try to do what we, we try to deliver something which is really relevant and speaks to that demographic. And um, I think that's uh, that, that's a really important part of um, what I guess you've uh, you, you knew going in. But what, what what sort of qualifications and what things have you done to get yourself into the place where you you're seen as an expert, you're referred to as an expert? How did, how did you get to that place? Well, um, I started a master's in applied positive psychology, which is really about individual. I mean, I, when I started it, I thought it was going to be much more about organisational well-being, but it's much more. It was set up originally as being about society and individuals, but mostly it's applied to individuals. Um, but that has been absolutely fascinating, and I've gained so much knowledge and insight, and and understanding how to do research as well, which I hadn't really, you know, done for a very long time. So I've 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 been I, I've got that, and then I've also been doing some organisational qualifications as well. So um, more in the um, you're going to regret asking this, but I've done a a European certificate in relational organisational gestalt theory, which is basically how everything. So how you as an individual will differ according to who you're with. So in other words, I felt that well-being was a concept which was relational. So it, uh, my well-being differs in relation to who I'm with and the situation that I'm in, right, that I'm in. I felt that it was impacted by you as an individual, your manager and your organisation. And that actually you couldn't divorce any of those three things. And relational organisational gestalt sort of is a theory which underpins that which I had sort of come up with by myself so actually I've academic validity to it so I actually did a, a certificate in it to, to, to see okay yes I'm right it is relational it does depend who you're with and what the situation you're in what your well-being is like so and then I'm just fascinated by the subject I've got a bookshelf with hundreds of books on it and I read on all aspects of psychology about therapy about social and cultural issues you know I I just find it really fascinating and I'm also actually this might sound really ridiculous but I'm also really interested by myself Self, what makes me tick so I'm I'm you know I, I'm constantly thinking about it and like okay why did I do that that's really interesting or going back and thinking about what I did and mm, that's interesting maybe I could have done that differently wonder why I addressed that so for example in the middle of my master's I had a meltdown a massive meltdown and I was writing an essay about resilience and I was complimenting myself on how resilient I was because I scored really high on a psychological capital survey, which is basically showing that you think you're very good at getting your self-efficacy is very high. You know, you're able to achieve the goals that you set out for yourself. And I thought, yeah, I'm doing really well here. And then I had a meltdown. And what I discovered was underpinning that meltdown was that I was a perfectionist. And I would never have seen myself as a perfectionist because I'm untidy, a little bit disorganised. I leave things to the last minute. You know, I would never have seen that. But 
what I when I looked into the concept of perfectionism, I understood that actually I had incredibly high standards for myself. I daren't make a mistake. And I also had really high standards for the people around me, which is called other-oriented perfectionism. And so that was really hard for them too, because when they made a mistake, I took it really, really personally. And so now I understand that about myself. That's not to say that I'm ever going to get rid of it entirely, but I can see when I make a mistake or when something isn't going exactly the way I wanted it to, I can see, ah, that's my perfectionism speaking. Now I understand that about myself. And as I understand these things, I share them with other people so that other people can start to think, oh, maybe, well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Maybe that's part of what gives me stress as well is the fact that I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So, yeah, that's kind of the way I'm wired. And I feel like I'm in the right place. I'm doing what I was, I don't know if you believe in destiny or fate. I don't really on one level, yeah. but I do, I'm doing what I should do. I'm doing what I was meant to do, as it were. Yeah, well, the good thing about it is it, it, it gets you going. It's something that you're interested in. You like doing it, you love doing it. And uh, that's the most important thing about any sort of role or anything that you're doing. And I just wanted to test your, your thoughts about this thing about um, if you see that as a failure, the fact that you, you, you describe it as having a meltdown, out of failure, doesn't there some, isn't there something that you can achieve from that or something you can learn from that or something you can take away? And I did not have a growth mindset. I had to succeed at everything that I did. Otherwise, it meant something about me. And actually, I am gradually getting a lot better at that. And I, I do believe in the concept of post-traumatic growth as well, which, I mean, it depends on your definition of trauma. Trauma, in the older definition, has to be something absolutely appalling that happens. But trauma is now being seen in a broader sort of thing. So the things that happen to you, which are not ideal, so, you know, I don't know, I'm divorced, I'm a single mother, I moved countries when my daughter was born, my parents both died last year, and I've had lots, as, as any person, I've had lots of things happen to me, and actually, I can look back and say, actually, I learned from that, I grew from that, I've developed something, or I've got more in touch with who I am, and what's really important to me, and, and just... I think the most important thing that I've learned is that as you get older and you start to to actually understand some of those things that have happened to you and why they've happened to you, it just gives you a bit more permission to just be yourself. So it's almost like uncovering those aspects that society, your parents, everything that happened to you, and you're gradually peeling those away and going, this is me. And actually, if you don't like me or you don't like what I have to say, I'm really sorry, but this is me. And I guess that's just to pick up on something that you mentioned there about the, the three things and the individual, the, the variable in terms of well-being, then how, how difficult is that? Because um, the question I'm going to ask you now is about, is it important as part of a well-being programme to, to measure about that satisfaction survey type thing or the net promoter or you know, the employee attitude survey. Is that important? Because it could be that, you know, is that a real indicator of the culture or is it just about how the individual might be feeling at that point in time? You talked about how they're feeling at that current time. And I think that when we talk about well-being, uh, we can sometimes get very hung up with what we feel right now. And actually, that is called subjective well-being. And it's very much more tied up with the ideas of hedonic well-being. So I'm feeling really happy. You know, I've got a glass of wine, I'm with my friends, or I'm having a lovely chat to my colleagues, I'm engaged in something I'm really enjoying, whatever. That's subjective well-being. And that can alter week by week, even day by day. If I'd had a chat with you yesterday... I was feeling really under the cosh. I had way too many things to do. I wasn't feeling great. I would have I would have said my subjective well-being is a bit low today. But then there is the concept of long-term life satisfaction. And that is almost counter to subjective well-being because to get long-term life satisfaction, often, not always, but you need to have growth, fulfillment, meaning, purpose, and those things can come at a price. They can come at the price of pain and going through difficulties. You, you can score really high on long-term life satisfaction and really low on subjective well-being. 
Or you might be just having a really good day, but know that fundamentally your life isn't exactly where you want it to be. You're not very fulfilled. You've not, not got meaning and purpose in your work. And therefore, you're not, you're not going to score very high on the long-term life satisfaction. So a good employee survey will kind of sort of look at how you usually feel about things. So it, it, you, you kind of need to combine this, this, this element of how I feel today with how I feel long term about my about my career. But it's the best way of finding out how what sort of stress risks you have in your business as well. So your employee survey should measure things like, you know, how change is managed, your relationship with your manager, do you have the right resources to do your job, all those things which actually are part of an HSE stress risk assessment. A lot of those you can get from your employee survey, which comes from HR which is, brings us back to the fact that HR and health and safety need to work together on this stuff because although health and safety may know how to do a risk assessment, HR have the data. And is there a precursor to using these surveys that actually you should start your programme, educate and then test or do you start it to get a benchmark, so get a reference point, then do it again in 12 months' time? What's the best way of approaching it, do you think, Heather? Most organisations will already have an employee survey in place and they'll have it on a rolling a rolling sort of thing where they might do it every two years or something like that. Lots of people during the pandemic brought in additional pulse surveys so they just ask a couple of questions on a much more regular basis and then they could just take the temperature. And I, it's not the education piece in terms of what is mental health and all of that probably sits quite independent to the engagements, the staff engagement survey. And I think there's certain levels that everybody needs. So everyone needs to understand what mental health and mental ill health are and how to have a good conversation with someone that's struggling. And then your managers all need to understand how to have that conversation, how to have a team that thrives and how to have that conversation with someone that's struggling in light of their manager duties. Your senior management team needs a slightly different cut of that. They need to understand about how they can role model good well-being and also what sort of processes and systems are going to undermine or create good well-being in their organisation. So there's those, those aspects that everybody needs. But then when you've done your staff engagement survey, you will then find out of that, you'll find actually we've got this issue. We might have the issue that, and this is a really common one, everybody's overloaded with work. So, you know, everyone's got way too much to do. So then you've got to ask yourself the question, is that because of the way that we allocate work in this organisation? Or is it because people do not feel they are comfortable enough to stand up and say to their manager, I've got too much on. How do I prioritise this? Help me to prioritise. Is that more important or is that? I'm still doing this thing you asked me to do six months ago every week. Do I still need to do it? Lots of people do not have that confidence. So there might be a training requirement that comes out of that or there might be a process requirement. So I'd say there's the basics and then there's your stuff you do to find out what your stress risks are. And then out of that, you might find you get further training requirements or process requirements. And a survey isn't the only way, by the way, to find out. I've done with organisations, I've done surveys and then I've followed that up with employee forums where I have people around the table and chat to them about what they love about working in that organisation and what they really dislike about it. And off the back of that, we've got very different ideas to what we got from the survey. We've got some very new things that actually seem like they were more important than what came out of the survey, believe it or not. So both ideas, are, are, are both things are a good idea to do. Or having a good feedback loop with your managers, with HR, is getting lots and lots of feedback loops in place. Yeah. So this um, the thing with surveys, you get the senior management team look at it and they go, you know, hold their head in their hands and it's like, oh my God, you know, what is it? You know, where do I start? And all this kind of stuff. So I suppose it's uh, there will be things that you need to interpret. So I'd say that don't look at the hard facts, think about it um, in, a, in the round maybe. Using what you're saying is um, using some external engagement to get a view, but also about why don't senior managers um, have a forum anyway or, you know, uh, management by walkabout or sit down with somebody and have lunch with them and, and understand what things are there so there's there's different ways of doing it I guess it's not this sort of like it's what's right for one but there's a number of different ways you can get a, a sense of how how is it out there and you know you can't always measure it you can just get a gut 
feeling about it, can't you? Yes. If you're in, t- if you are, as you said, Mike, if you're doing a lot of walkabouts and people feel you're approachable, they're able to come talk to you, you're going to get a much better idea of that. And you know, you might get something come out of your survey. You think, oh my goodness, mate, what on earth is that all about? Let's now set up a a bit of a forum to establish what do they mean by this, or what could we do that's going to improve this. Yeah. But you know what, Mike, you sometimes get some really quick wins as well, and you uh, you can say, look. We've addressed this because this came out of the survey. And then there are other big, knotty, sometimes wicked problems that you can't solve straight away. And then you've just got to get really good at communication. So where are we on this thing? You know, I I worked with an organisation once that had a quick win, but they also had a massively knotty problem, which everybody knew about, which was going to take about two years to solve. So people felt ill-informed about where the progress was on that big problem. So they basically started to really communicate everywhere about it. They had, you know, they had it all around the walls. They had it on the intranet. They they gave loads of graphical updates so people could see. They could feel the progress towards where they needed to get to. And that really helped. So this um, comes back again to this whole relationship and communication and being able to have those conversations. And, you know, we've seen over time in Practice 42 that the relationships that we establish with clients, the relationship that we have with our, our team members, is key to the way that we, we you know you become successful um, and sometimes those hard conversations uh, there's a skill that you need there's a uh, it's not necessarily about well-being that's why this sort of HR business partner health and safety working together it's about how do you have those difficult conversations and you know when do you know when you need to bring in somebody to support you in having those conversations as well when we do our manager training you know we're very real about the fact that this is this is quite hard for managers so you see someone struggling and you automatically have these barriers to going up and talking to them you're worrying about you know being intrusive you're worrying about saying the wrong thing you're worrying about making it worse you're worrying about landing up in a tribunal because you handle it so badly, you know. And as a manager, these are all very real concerns and quite often for managers as well. What happens at the time somebody is struggling is their performance is also struggling. So you go into that probably with a performance appraisal mindset. And then you, if you're, if you're asking the right questions, you might actually find that there's something underneath that which isn't about isn't about them being difficult. They've got something going on which is causing them to not perform as well as they normally do. So, um, so that's where we, that's what we train in is giving people the confidence to to have those conversations because all too often, you know, what happens is we avoid that and then the situation gets worse. That person goes off sick. You don't want to contact them because you're worried about harassing them when they're off sick yeah. with stress. And actually, then you have a long-term sick problem, which you can't resolve very yeah. easily. Yeah, I was always uh, told that, that, you know, and what I've learned over time is that when somebody is off for a long period of time, is about not to harass them, but to be in contact because they can get the other message, which is actually nobody needs me anymore then. And that can make it even worse. So it's about having that confidence to say, you know, I want to keep in contact. It's a good, it's a good principle, um, but also I want to help you to get to where you want to be, which could be you know either varying your work or helping you you know because you're either having to care or you need care yourself. So there's all those sorts of things. Unless you have that conversation, then you don't know. And text messaging and that kind of thing just winds me up. If that's the way to, that's not a way to keep in touch, is it? Sort of by sending them a nice email. We're seeing what generation we're part of here because the younger generation, everything's done by text, isn't it? That's how they communicate everything. So, uh, yes, but yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. And again, it's a really hard one but to get the balance right. But as you said, it's through negotiation, isn't it? It's saying, you know, okay, maybe we don't want to talk. Maybe you don't want to talk to me once every two weeks, but, you know, should we, should we, uh, you know, should we get together in the park or should we do it every three weeks or something like that? Because you've got a duty of care to that individual. It was funny because, well, not funny, but we created this course together with an HR employment lawyer way back when we started because I wanted this course first and foremost because I'd struggled with that conversation. I mean, I still do. It's not easy. So, you know, I'd struggled. So I wanted to create something that would help people. And so I worked with an HR employment lawyer and they used to specialise in mediation with employees that were off long-term sick. And they said that they had loads of people on their books who'd been off two years, you know, a year, 
And mm. the company had stopped communicating with them because it was all too terrifying. Nobody quite knew yeah, what yeah. to do with this person anymore, you know. And, and, and that's why, as you said, just keeping in touch the whole way through, managing the process through is, is so important. And my experience was in a, a, an organisation that would change, was changing pretty much every nine, ten months maybe. And it wasn't. It's a, it's a massive wind up in terms of trying to get your health and safety management system in place because you engage with the senior team, you've got them in play, and then also they, they you know they go, and then it's about something else happens, and then another business is acquired, and there's another culture that comes in, and what would happen was there was a there's a, a, a group of about twenty people that had been on long term sick, and nobody knew what was going on with them. And when we when we were part of occupational health, because we had this holistic approach to occupational health, safety, and environment, as it was at the time, and fire safety, you know, that was something that we had to try and deal with. And um, it actually got to one point where there was uh, it's almost like they felt it was constructive dismissal. The fact that this, these people were sitting out there on full pay, and it became a big issue. So, um, and part of it was because there was no manager associated with this group of people, which had sort of gone into a off a call, cost center into a, like a, a group cost center. Um, so yeah it's, it's just this thing about keeping up to date with people and making sure that the communication continues is, is really important it sort of moves me on to something else which um the one of the things i wanted to sort of ask you about was that when you see well-being now going forward do you see it's part of uh, the uh, esg approach you know the you know the environmental social government approach do do you think that that's something that organizations are now looking to do they see well-being as as, as that key to the way that they go about their 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 business i think that there are very few organizations that are at that point right now um i think that moving forward it 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 sort of makes sense and that comes back to this whole holistic approach doesn't it it has to be something that just gets knitted into this is the way we do business because we're a company that is sustainable you know and we worry about sustainability we worry about all the aspects of that including people including safety all of those other things and and that's and why i also think that the um new well-being standard 45003 is a good thing because a lot of organizations already have a standards-based approach for things like quality or for health and safety and to be able to um build well-being in using the same sort of language and using the senior management buy-in approach it is a good thing because then you've just got harmonized sort of system and approach so i suppose the uh, people are missing a trick here because the ethical investment is about how the ethics of going back 20 odd years now where we used to get looked at and because we had quite large call centers and they saw that as an issue and you know how are you treating those people in the call centers because it was almost like the going looking at it in a different way and saying that it's not a factory anymore and how do you treat those people ethically but also what do you do with call centers like call rates breaks and all that kind of thing about um, the activities that go on there so i think esg is you know the place where well-being should be part of that reporting and to say this is how we have a well-being program because it makes sense because it's about you know a sustainable business is about those people which are doing the best they can in the situation that they find themselves in at this particular point in time. And on that 45,003, just a bit challenging here, um, what's the point if it's not certificated? <laughs> well, I think what it does is it, it provides you with a sort of proven approach to what will work in an organisation. And it it also insists on this, the whole way that you know that 45,001 work is that bought buy-in from senior management, communication from senior management, and then, you know, how do I knit safety into the DNA of my organisation, really, isn't it? Fundamentally, that's what we're doing. And we're doing the same with well-being if we're using a standard like 45,003. I don't think there will be the external um, supplier benefits to doing it. But internally, internal stakeholders should be able to start to perceive a difference in the way the organisation functions if you've got 45,003. Now, having said that, Mike, I struggle with the language of standards. I really do. I did my 45,001 lead implementer course and I nearly cried all the way through it because it just isn't me, the language. But again, one of the things that I uh, think I, I like to do is to translate 
technical speak into the language of the people that are sitting in front of me. And, and actually 45,003 for me is an opportunity because I've got lots of people saying to me, I want to implement 45,003. Can you come and engage my board for me? So they understand the point of well-being. They understand why we're going to implement this standard. And that I can do and that I will be, you know, happily doing. The mechanics of how the standard works, the implementation of the standard, even though I've done the course, yeah. I don't think I'll be doing that. No, no, but that's why we're going to invite you in, Heather, and uh, you can talk to Practice 42 about it, because uh, we've got the standards. It's uh, it's making sure that you don't use the standards to drive what you want to do. It's about you know what you want to do, and the standards just help you get there. And I think that's the, the way to do it. And when we were doing 9001 Early Doors before it became 2015, uh, we resisted doing that to say we you know, tick the box for all the standards because we've got a management system in, in, in place. We, we knew what we were doing. We knew how to do it. And we wanted it to shape around what we did. And that was when 2015 helped us do that in 9,000. And same with 45,001, which we've got. Um, so, uh, yeah, we look forward to inviting you in. And, uh, yes, okay, that'll be, that'll be good fun. So um, finishing on, on something which uh, we, we talked about was, so you, you, talk, you, you explained that, as you grow older and as you mature, etc., there is this uh, conversation that might need to be had, and it's not something which I probably want to promote, but or prompt, but it has to be uh, part of our thinking. I'd say is about menopause and how that impacts on in- individuals, and yeah, just uh, just give us a bit of uh, your thoughts about that. Well, my personal experience is it's rotten. <laughs> But um, my corporate experience, so it's really interesting because why have we only just discovered that this is a topic that we need to talk about in the workplace? Well, it's because women in their 50s haven't been as, you know, as much employed in organisations as they are now. So we've it's the fastest growing demographic in the workplace is women of 50 plus. So um, we now have a demographic where, oh my goodness, you know, it, there's some issue. There's some things we have to take into account here, like we did when somebody was potentially pregnant, or or even you know when somebody's going through any other issue in life. It's just one of those things that we have to accommodate, really. And so we're finding lots of organisations are sort of asking us to come and talk to them about menopause. And you know, is it a policy? Some people have a policy. There's no legal requirement to have a policy, by the way. Lots of organizations prefer to put some guidance in place, but a lot of it's an education piece. And it's it's an education piece because um even women like me who are going through it, we don't know anything about it. We've just never had it talked about. We didn't know what was coming. Yeah. It was always something you stayed tight lipped about and all oh, it was like no 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 you don't talk about yeah. it. And 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 um, yeah, yeah. so it comes a big shock. And I think the biggest shock for me was to establish that one in four women lose their jobs during the menopause and one in eight leave the workforce altogether. You know, it varies enormously from 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 person to person. So most of us will get a form of brain fog on occasion. Uh, we might get the hot sweats. You know, we there are other things that that, that come alongside it, which fatigue, things like that. But it, yeah. there are things that we can do to address those things. So uh, there are various alternative therapies. There's diet. There's exercise. There's HRT. And and you know getting doing those things will help as an individual and then as workplaces we need to think about how do I talk to somebody about this you know what kind of support can I offer them and 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 does that make sense in in the organization I have can I give that person that support in the team that I have does that work is it a question of just moving them somewhere in which case I can just do that or is it a question of um actually you know, we need to give that person time off to go to a menopause specialist or something like that. So I, I guess we just need to consider how we support those people going through that in the same way as we would support someone if they were going through any issue in their in their lives or with or with their health. Hmm. And for me, one of the things that's really interesting about this is that it really makes us think about this question of inclusion. And and the fact that we're all going to go through different things and be relating to the workforce in a different way throughout our lives. So when I started in my 20s, I 
absolutely did nothing but work, but it was the greatest fun ever. You know, I, I worked, I was in the mm. pub with my friends. I traveled all the time for work. I lived in Amsterdam for a bit. You know, I was promoted every year. It was just everything. That was my career was everything. And I loved it. And as you get older and you have children, you have a slightly different relationship with your career. And as you get to my age, you're looking for different things. You might be looking for working perhaps less time, but doing something that you'll really gives you meaning and purpose. And, you know, it, 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 it's at every stage of your life, you're looking for different things. And I suppose for organisations, it's understanding the value of all of those different pieces coming together. So having, you know, young people that are that have maybe got more energy, more time, more, you know, and then having that experience, those experienced people as well who can add to the picture and having people from different uh, demographics so that you are representing different opinions and different mm. strengths. We have a, a massive issue, all of us, in that we all recruit to a certain extent in our own image, don't we? So we look for people that mm. are like us, and then we end up with a with a with a not very diverse board, not a very diverse workforce, and we then represent just one demographic. And the best thing is to get lots and lots of ideas and and lots of ways and thoughts from all different demographics, and bringing all those different strengths to the table. That's what will make us stronger. Yeah, no, and I think that blend is is really important. And uh, in our in our small business, we try and do that by having the, the apprentice scheme. So we have an apprentice, we bring in trainees, we bring in people that we we grow um, that may not have all the experiences that we you know that they should you know we bring them in basically to learn the trade. Um, but that's what we want to commit to, and that's that's our culture. And and it's about then having the. Uh, recognition that it's about having the right people in the in the business and um, and just making sure that uh, there is a you know selection process which is robust enough. But the uh, the thing about what you're saying though, um, just to, to finish off, is that yeah, we need to just recognise that people go through different phases and there's different things. And I guess that brings me to the the sort of the the final bit about this whole um, what is well being because I struggled with it early doors and I thought it was mental health and was stress and that kind of thing. So What's your view on it? So I've asked a couple of our guests about it and different people got different views. So there's no right answer, as you know. Yeah, I'm not going to give you a straightforward answer to this one, Mike, I'm afraid. <laughs> there are, I think, the last count of 99 more, more, more than 99 definitions of well-being. There are tons and tons of them, and everybody sees it yeah. slightly differently. And if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, it says it's the state of being comfortable, healthy or happy. I disagree with that. I think that's a really old-fashioned definition of well-being because well-being can be about growth as well. And we know that with growth comes pain, as we talked about earlier. And for me, it's that combination of I feel happy in the moment and I've got good long-term life satisfaction. I actually like the New Economics Foundation um, definition, which says well-being can be understood as how people feel and how they function both on a personal and a social level, and how they evaluate their lives as a whole. So I like that definition. But as I said, you ask lots of different people who get lots of different definitions. And I think it's a moving thing as well. I think we used to think of it as you had to be healthy. I give you an example I always give in my courses. I say my dad had dementia and he had a, a bit of a heart problem. Could he still have good well-being towards the end of his life with that? What's your what's your belief in that, Mike? What do you think? Yeah, if they're being cared for and they're being looked after, and there's that uh, compassion and um, and there's the recognition about dignity, then yeah, I mean that's the thing, isn't it? And and how the people perceive it. So you can't actually say it's to do with health from that perspective, can you? Because my dad wasn't physically healthy, but he was happy, and he had long term good long term life satisfaction. He had great people around him looking after him. It is physical and mental, but it's also social, emotional. You know, it's 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 how do I relate to what's going on? You know, how do I do I feel that I'm in a good place? And I think if you look at it and the mechanics of it all, is that um, my recognition is that it's a number of different things which you probably do instinctively anyway. So it's you know in our experiences, it's been people that have had a partner that's left them, and um, the mortgage needs to be paid. You know, can you help me out as the employer? Well, yeah, of course we will. 
Um, you know, how, how do you deal with, um, you know, somebody's got um, been diagnosed with terminal cancer? Um, can you support me? Or recognising that they're going to need some support and actively doing that and helping out um, so that that gives them the best outcome. So there's a whole range of different things that the mechanic, what I call me mechanics, that it's just not this thing about it's not mental health or mental ill health or whatever. Um, there's a whole range of different things which um, go into your programme of what well-being can be within your organisation. Often privately owned companies will say to me, well, we don't really have very much in terms of formal well-being, but we know that, but people know we're really approachable and if they're having a problem, they can come to us and we'll help them with it. And that is well-being, you know, just the same as an organisation that has a really formal strategy and offers this and offers that and offers the other. Being open, approachable and trying to be flexible to accommodate people is part of a, a good corporate well-being, isn't it? It is, yeah. I suppose I got some of it when I started working when I was uh, 16 and it, the uh, business was uh, very much, um, so here's your salary, here's your pension, um, here's all these dif different things that you could have as uh, what was called welfare and you'd have the welfare nurse and you'd go to see the welfare nurse if you weren't feeling too well and the, doc the doctor would then see you about something so you could get that and the dentist would help, you know, they would come in and do certain things and the shropodist would come in and look after you and that kind of stuff. The, the guy that was the head of personnel at the time was, uh, was an ex-major in the army and uh, John was a really straight guy but what I got was that he used to think with his heart, not his head and he was just perfect about, you know, how that whole thing was about the people's welfare. That's the, that was the olden days though. Well, it's the olden days, yes. <laughs> yeah, so th th it's really great uh, to be able to talk to you about you know, well-being and and how how that uh, impacts on on you know any organisation. So um, and from your experiences as well. So um, it's been really great, uh, Heather, to uh, to be able to spend some time with you and look forward to doing that. Yeah, lovely to talk to you yeah. too, Mike. Thanks so much for giving me the time today. Thanks a lot, then. Thanks so much for listening to Risk Sleep Repeat. If you'd like to appear on the show, if there's a topic you'd like to discuss, or if you want to let us know your thoughts, please do so using the hashtag Risk Sleep Repeat or get in touch via our website at praxis42.com. <laughs>